The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. It is good to be back. Um, I missed you guys last week. Uh, it went great, by the way. I got the privilege of, of preaching at a, at a church last weekend, and um, it is just really incredible to see God moving in our city, and so I was grateful. But it's so good to be back with you. If you have your Bibles, would you grab them? And although we read from Matthew, would you open with me to 1 Corinthians? Uh, 1 Corinthians, specifically, chapter 10. And while you're getting there, I want to talk to you about something called repetition. Uh, repetition, uh, it's a really important tool for a communicator. Whether a writer, a speaker, uh, repetition is this tool that can be used to show importance or, or emphasis. Uh, it's a tool that a writer can, can use. In other words, a good communicator will repeat what is important. Now, understanding that, um, for those of us who approach this as God's word, his truth, his authority, one of the greatest tasks that we have as we seek to understand this better is to find out what is called authorial intent. Authorial intent. So the best way to think about this is to imagine that I wrote a friend a letter. And uh, I, I sat down, I wrote this letter, and in one way or another, it came into your hands and you were given the task to interpret that letter. Right? So, so as great as you are, as insightful as I know that you are, um, what you got out of it doesn't really make that much of a difference when you're telling me what this letter means. Um, you know, what you got out of it is not as important as what I meant to say, what I meant to communicate. As the author, what, it, it, let me put it like this. You could get something out of it that I never put in it. And you could miss something completely that I intended to communicate. Have you ever thought of your Bible that way? You should. You, you should, because the meaning is found in the author's intent and not the reader's personal interpretation. Now, um, this is authorial intent. And when you're dealing with a letter that I wrote, this is pretty easy, because if you don't understand something, you say, hey, what does this mean? Just ask me, right? It's easy when you're dealing with a letter today, but what do we do in our Bibles when we approach Scripture you can't just go grab Paul and say, Paul, what did you mean? What did you mean? So can we really, when we come to God's word, can we really have our mind wrapped around authorial intent? Now, yes, there is a trump card here. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, uh, guiding you, your light as you read, as you study scripture. He's the author behind the author, right? That's the trump card, but hear me. Just because you have the Holy Spirit and your Bible and a good cup of coffee, <laughs> got to have that, right, does not give you the right to be lazy. 
doesn't give us the right to be lazy. So all scripture is inspired by God through the pens of human authors. And because of this, as we study scripture, as we come to this, as we meditate on this, part of our work, the hard work that we have to do is to ask and to seek to answer. Now, what did the author intend to communicate by this? Now, the reason I bring this up is because when the author uses something like repetition, he makes our job easy. He makes our job easier for us. So as we approach our text today, what we are going to see and what we're going to notice is that Paul is repeating himself. As you read this, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you're going to notice, I've heard this. I have heard this. He's dealt with this before. And so what I want us to do is, as we read this, I want you to imagine that Paul has just come with a a holy hand and highlighted, written that portion of the text in bold, said, hey, emphasis here, focus here. Over the last several chapters, Paul has addressed so many issues in this church, from human sexuality to idolatry to even food. But through all of these issues, there has been this predominant and driving theme, this repeated theme, this repeated theme throughout the entire book, but wow, specifically in chapters 8 and beyond. Paul is on repeat here. He, he has this driving theme, this idea that we should do nothing, nothing to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel in someone else's life. He's repeated this message to us over and over and over that we should do nothing to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel in someone else's life. Now, we have talked and we've called this gospel primacy, this idea that the gospel, the message of the gospel going out should be of first priority. And so Paul says again and again, there is no freedom, there is no personal right that is more important than your neighbor hearing and responding to the gospel. There is nothing more important because they are worth it. Them hearing, them responding to the gospel, they are worth it. A good way to think about this is um, our gospel might, probably will, be offensive. I mean, the Bible told us it would be. The Bible told us that our message, apart from the Spirit of God working and moving, that the gospel, the, the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified will be offensive. Our message might be offensive, but Paul is driving home here. Just because our gospel message might be offensive does not mean that our gospel messengers need to be offensive. Paul has been calling us to this gospel primacy and to selflessly commit ourselves to the gospel going forward into the lost world. And so now what he's going to do in our text as we look at this, he's going to just drive this home a bit. So let's start in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is almost, this is a close to an exact quote from earlier in this letter in, in chapter 6, verse 12. And remember what we said already, you repeat what's important. You repeat what's important. Now, listen to these words, 13 words, verse 24, 13 powerful words that sum up so much. Listen to this. Let no one seek his own good, 
but the good of his neighbor. I am so convinced that Jesus was right. Is that the most shocking statement you've ever heard a pastor make? I am, I am so convinced. I just got how no-brainer that the comment that was. I am so convinced that Jesus was absolutely right. Remember when Jesus was asked to boil everything down. Tell us, Jesus, what is the most important? What's the most important law? Boil it down. All the law, all the prophets, all theology, boil it down. When Jesus was asked to boil it all down and to give us the single most important thing, do you remember what he said? He boiled it down into into what we see in Matthew 22 that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love people. Love God with everything and love people selflessly. So here Paul says, look, church, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. As Paul is instructing this church with this, he is not giving them anything new. What he's doing is restating for them a foundational pillar of the Christian faith. He's stating for them, this is the law. This is what being a Christian is all about. This is not new or novel. This is Christian. That that no one should seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul is reminding them, church, of their identity. Now, pause button here. Let me remind you of your identity. Let me remind you, we are a people who are not out seeking for our own good, but we are a people who seek the good of our neighbors. This is who we are in Christ. This is who he has called us to be and who he is transforming us to be. We are a people who love God and love people. So let me ask this question that has been pressing me before we move forward. Am I that person? Is this true of me? Are you that person? Are you this person who is so selflessly committed to sharing the gospel message, the love of the gospel, that you're more committed to that than furthering your own personal agenda? Is this describing you? Here's why I say this. As I wrestled with this, I couldn't help but think about something. Maybe you thought about it too, and we can admit it together, okay? This idea, listen to this again, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. As, you, as I read that, as you read that, d- does that just seem like a radical statement? Like, that's just radical. Can you imagine a community who does that? That just seems like out of this world, like, I think of the day when Christ returns. Everything's going to be right, and we're going to have that. Like, this is a picture of what the church will be when it's all made right, right? That's what I think of when I read this, but, but then it just convicted me and saddened me that Paul's statement here is not about the future, the church in the future. It's, it's, this is a statement that describes the current reality of the church, the current reality of those changed by the gospel. This is not a statement to describe the way we will be in the future. This is a statement to describe who we are today 
In other words, this is a description of us here at Stone Oak Bible Church. And the thing that saddened me is when I first read it, it seemed radical. Why would something seem radical that's supposed to be foundational? It just wrecked me. Why would I read this and think, well, one day we'll get that right? When Jesus is saying, no, this is who you are. This is your identity as a follower. This has to start with us. I mean, it has to, right? Uh, let's get practical here. Paul's about to get practical, so he gives me the permission. Um, what would you surrender or give up for your neighbor? Let's get really specific. For, for all of us here in a community group, what would you be willing to give up for your brother and sister who you do life with in your community group? Are you willing to give yourself your energy, your time, your money, your gifts? Are you willing to give them up for the good of your community, for the good of the gospel going out? If that meant that your comfort was taken away. Is this us? Here's the question I want us all to wrestle with and answer. How have you invested yourself in gospel advancement? Look at yourself. Look at your life. How have you invested yourself in gospel advancement? Church, you need an answer to this. We need an answer. We need to be able to answer this question. And if you're, you're here and you're wondering, you're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We've said this before, but sometimes the best indicators of this are our calendars and our bank statements. So we have this, we're really good at lying to ourselves. Like, no, I'm good. I'm good. The funny thing about our calendars and bank statements is they don't lie. They just tell us the truth. So I encourage you, if you're wondering, start there. What do they tell you is most important in your life? Do they reveal an investment in the gospel being advanced? That's the question. Do they reveal an investment, your investment in gospel advancement? What does the way you spend your time, your energy, your money say about your life? How have you invested yourself? Now, Paul is going to drive this church to, to answer this question. And as he does, I believe it's just such an important question for us to wrestle with. So having said that, let's drop in as Paul drops into a very specific application here. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the, in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, this is a direct reference, like I said, he's a little bit repeating, to chapter 8. Now, if you remember... Uh, chapter 8, Paul was dealing with a conflict that came up, uh, dealing specifically with meat, uh, dealing with meat. So in this ancient city, here's the practice that he's referring to, they would sacrifice animals to their pagan false gods. It was a rampant practice. They would sacrifice these animals to these gods, and, and, and they would sacrifice them, but then there was a lot of meat left over. 
So you had all this meat left over, and so what they would do is they would take that meat and they would sell it on the market. They would, they would sell it, they would bring it to the marketplace. Now keep in mind, uh, we eat a lot more meat than they did back then. So meat in their day was a bit of a luxury. In other words, it would bring in some bank on the market. So this practice was, was, would bring in some, some nice cash. And, and depending on who you read, where you read, anywhere from one to two-thirds of all of the meat consumed in Corinth came from this practice. That's crazy. It just shows how rampant and prevalent idolatry was. That's a lot of dead animals being sacrificed. It's a lot of meat. But here's what ha- is happening or was happening here in this church. There were, there were believers in this church who were new to the faith. They had just responded to the gospel. They had just been saved out of that, sacrificing animals. They had just been saved and set free from that. So now these believers um, are deeply offended by those in the church who are bringing this dirty meat back in. They're, they're, they're offended and, and, and just it, it sickens them that this meat would be used to make a profit. And these new believers are just torn up by this. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to show them, no, 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 you are free to eat the meat. There's no dirty meat. It's not going to defile you yet. Although that's true, do you know how Paul responds to this conflict? I love this. Do you know how Paul responds to this conflict? He doesn't tell, right? He doesn't tell these new believers who are offended to get over it. He could have, but he doesn't. No, instead, he tells the believers, the more mature believers, to lay themselves down, to lay down their rights and their freedoms for the weaker brother. Not about being right. It's about loving. And this was the call. In other words, he doesn't condemn these brothers and sisters to grow up. Like, grow up and... and, and let your view of your diet grow up, right? No, he, he comes to them and instead he reminds the more mature believers that they need to grow up in their view of selfless love. Because maturity in Christ is not based on your dietary convictions. It is based in your sacrificial love for one another. Jesus says that by that they will know that you are mine, by your love for one another. And the more mature you are in Christ, the more you understand Jesus' really simple statement. Love God and love others. Love God, love others. So here in Corinth, let's look at this again and let's look at this passage. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising question, right? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, you are free to eat that meat, free. Scripturally, you are free. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you, you go, eat whatever is set before you without making a scene. You are free. The word of God does not forbid it. If it's not an offense to your brother, Paul says, dig in, eat with gratitude. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. For the sake of conscience, their conscience, you hear me? You're still free to eat the meat, yet there's a greater freedom that's on display here. 
there's a greater freedom. You are free to set down your freedom in order to love your brother well. That's a whole different level of freedom. So Paul makes this incredible statement here. Look with me in verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, that sounds crazy. Sounds kind of dangerous. Some of you read this and think that would lead to some serious abuse in life. If I took that and I did this, I mean, who wants to live their life on eggshells? Who wants to live this life trying to please everyone? That sounds awful. This sounds dangerous, pleasing everyone. I mean, let's be honest. These days you can sneeze wrong and offend people. This sounds like a really rough life. But I want you to notice something with me here. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, he was known for a lot of things. A lot of things. He was bold. He was passionate. He didn't back away from some really difficult issues. We've already seen that. This was Paul. He was known for this. This letter is a good example of it. We just walked through some incredibly difficult situations that Paul is calling this church out for. He's known for a lot of things, but hear me. People-pleasing is not one of them. Paul's not known for being a people pleaser in the way that you and I would think of that word. Here, Paul is not calling this church to people pleasing like our identity is wrapped up in the fact of whether or not they like us or not. That's not what's on display here. Paul instead is calling us to selfless love. Selfless love that we would be able that we would be willing to lay down our freedoms for our neighbor, for the good of our neighbor. I know the bacon looks good, but they're worth putting it down. This is what's on display here. Paul says, I'm not seeking some advantage for myself. I'm not living as though my life were my own. No, I pour myself out knowing I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price, so now that in everything I do, I proclaim the gospel that they may hear that many may hear, that many may respond to the gospel, that many would grow in the gospel, that many might be saved, as Paul says. And then Paul drops this line, be imitators as me as I, as I am of Christ. Church, consider the gospel that's on display in that statement. Jesus, who though is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. And what did he empty himself of? He didn't empty himself of his godness or his deity, however you want to say it. No, church, Jesus emptied himself of his rights for you. He had every right to stay on his throne but instead, he put that down and stepped into humanity, taking on flesh, enduring the cross, enduring pain. He laid down his right because of the love that God had for you. 
This is our God. This is our Savior. This is Jesus. And now Paul says, I'm simply imitating him. I'm simply doing what he did. That's all I am doing. I'm following his lead. Paul could have built his life, his career, on building himself up. Paul was sharp. Paul could have structured his life in a way that brought him comfort, security. Think about this. Paul was going to go on to be martyred. He could have done some things different to prevent that. Now, you and I probably wouldn't be here today if he chose to do that. But he could have. But he didn't. Do you know why? Why? Because Jesus said to go that there are lost people who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. The whole known world had not heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul lays down his rights to a comfort and secure life. And he says, I'll go. I'll go and I'll give myself so that they might hear, so that they might believe. Because of the example of Jesus Christ, he embraced this life of selfless love. This is who Jesus is, and that's who his followers are called to be. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Church, could you say that? Could you say that? Could you just say, guys, just follow my lead, right? Follow my lead as I follow Jesus. Could we say that? Now, of course, Paul was not perfect. Of course, Paul sinned. He failed, and so will you. But have you structured your life in a way that it serves you? Or have you structured your life in a way that it serves them? Not all of us are called to missions, like Paul to leave and to set sail and to go to foreign lands. Not all of us. That's not all of our calling. But I will say this. All of us are called to be on mission. Every single one of us are called to be on mission, to structure your life in a way that advances the gospel. So how have you invested yourself in gospel advancement? When we miss this, we miss a foundational part of the message of the gospel. Because it's not optional. This is simply going back to Jesus' foundation, love God, love others. Love God, love others. Now, I, I, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Um, I know we're preaching through 1 Corinthians. But I want to ask if you would to turn with me to John 21. I think that's allowed. I think it's allowed. I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. Um, I know that there are a lot of people here that want to grow in their faith. I get the joy as your pastor to have these incredible conversations where I get to see some of your hunger for growing in your faith and your uh, growing in wisdom, growing in your understanding of Scripture. I love our church. I love our church. But as we approach a text like 1 Corinthians 10... And we get this challenge from Paul, these 13 words, this uh, let no one uh, seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Um, we hear this and, and we say, okay, now what? <laughs> what, does, what does that mean? What, how do I take that and what does this do for me? How does this change me? 
And as our minds wrap around this question, I have found that John 21 is incredibly helpful, incredibly powerful. Jesus is going to give us this word, this calling. In reality, what Jesus is going to do is ask us a very direct question and then call us to a very direct action. And so I want us, I'll put it like this, I want us to sit under the weight of Jesus's question and to sit under the weight of Jesus's call as we think about 1 Corinthians 10. So here in John, the book is about to be over. Uh, we, it, we have just seen Jesus has been crucified, mocked, beaten, on trial. He hung on that tree. He breathed his last. It is finished. Then in chapter 19, we see his burial. In chapter 20, uh, he is resurrected And in chapter 20, as John recounts uh, some of the appearances that Jesus made after he rose from the dead. Um, Then, in chapter 21, we get this special story, and it's the way John chooses to end his gospel. In this story, Jesus appears to seven of his disciples. Peter, six others, decided to go out fishing Uh, The text says that they were out all night and caught nothing. Tough night, rough night for some fishermen. Out all night, caught nothing. Just as the sun was coming up, just as the sun was coming up, um, the text says that, that they saw a figure standing on the shore. Couldn't quite tell who it was. They couldn't figure it out. But this person on the shore just calls out to him and says, hey, children, have you caught any fish? They call out, no. (laughs) No, we haven't. Then the person calls out again, then cast your net on the other side. It's weird for a figure to yell at you, but you know, they listen. They had nothing to lose at this point. So as they tossed the net in on the other side of the boat, um, all of a sudden, the catch was so great that they couldn't even pull it up. And it was in this moment, at this point, that it started to click. This realization set in. And John looks over to Peter and says, wait a second. Is that the Lord? Is that Jesus? And I love Peter's reaction. So here's what Peter does. He, he grabs his shirt and literally just jumps into the water. Just grabs his shirt, let's do this, go, and just jumps into the water. Splash, swimming. Um, how awesome is that? This swim was about 100 yards. That's a fair, fair swim there. Um, he jumps in and he just starts going. He starts going, you have to wonder what is in, it is running through Peter's mind in this moment. As they get to the shore, they find that Jesus had prepared a fire and breakfast, inviting them to literally sit around the campfire with their resurrected Savior over some breakfast. Now, how awesome is that moment? What a scene. This, this moment, as it progresses, they finish eating together, and then Jesus turns to Peter and asks this question. And as we read this, I want you to keep in mind, this was the man, Peter. 
who had just a few moments earlier had denied Jesus three times. Literally a few days prior to this. Had just abandoned Jesus during his trial. Not once, not twice, three times. That this is the man who had failed during Jesus' greatest time of trial and pain, Peter bailed. That's the man Jesus looks at when he asks this question. Now Jesus looks at Peter, and in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Interesting question. Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus responds to this, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Following this, Jesus looks at him again, and he asked him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So Peter responds again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, Jesus responds, tend my sheep. Then again, for a third time, Jesus looks at Peter eye to eye and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? At this, Peter was grieved. He was saddened that he had to ask a third time, do you love me? Are you doubting me or are you making reference to the fact that I just bailed on you three times? What's going on here? Peter is grieved. And through this grief, Peter still replies, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said to him one last time, feed my sheep. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Peter was a broken man. His sin was right before his eyes. I mean, the sheer fact that he was asked three times by Jesus, do you love me, would have been a striking reminder to the three times that he had just denied him. His sin was right in his eyes. And, and, and Jesus reminds Peter, in the midst of his struggle, he reminds him of one thing. Feed my sheep. In other words, Jesus says, Love and care for those around you. Your past failure and your past sin does not excuse you to live selfless, selfishly today. So Jesus asked, do you love me? Yes, yes. Feed my sheep. Because loving our God means loving our neighbor. Loving our God means loving our neighbor. As we saw earlier, Jesus said, you, you, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Regardless of your past this morning, this is your call. In this moment, I want you to put yourself, as we close, in Peter's shoes. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. In so many ways, we're just like Peter. Um, we're broken in sin. Some of us I, might even be here, and, and like Peter, you're coming fresh off a of sin. You're sitting here, and it is ever before you in your mind. It is fresh in your minds. And what I love about this is, is Jesus looks Peter in the eye, looks you in the eyes, and he doesn't offer Peter some new recovery program. Nope. It's a simple call back to what is important. If you love me, love them. 
Love God, love people. That's it. Love me, then feed my sheep. Love me, then tend my sheep. Love me, then care for my people. So as we close and we put ourselves in this moment, Jesus looking at you with all of your warts, with everything that you have in your life, Jesus looking at you asks you the simple question, do you love me? Now, before we move, before we talk about anything else, talk about loving others, we have to start with this question, do you love him? Have you responded to the gospel? Do you trust that Jesus Christ died for you? Have, do you trust in Christ? Do you love him? If you have never responded to the gospel, if you have never considered God's great love that he has shown for you, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for your salvation, church, it has to start here. You cannot demonstrate the love of God to your community without first knowing the love of God in your life. You cannot demonstrate what Paul is asking you to demonstrate without first knowing and loving God himself. It must start here. And I want you to know, I would love the opportunity to pray and to talk with you. Don't leave this place without responding to the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean it. Don't leave this place. God demonstrated his love for you that while you were yet a sinner, he died. Christ died for you. That is love. Do you know this love? Can you answer Jesus' question the same way Peter did? Yes, Lord, you know. You know I love you. Uh, some of our leaders uh, and our elders, we, we're going to be here in the back. We would love to pray with you, or if you prefer. I know some of you have to take off. Um, there's a card on your, on your chair around you. It's a black card. Just drop that in the back. I would love the opportunity to follow up with you. I would love the opportunity to follow up with you. Jesus asked us, do you love me? For those of you who are here, and you would say yes, you would answer the way Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I do, then Jesus is calling us, calling you, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, care for my people, care for each other. Are you doing that? Are you laying yourself down for them? He says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Church, true freedom is having the freedom to lay aside your freedom for each other. True freedom is having the freedom to lay aside your freedom for each other. See, you have every right to think about yourself in this life. You have every right to build your life, your career, everything about you. You have every right to just do it all with you in mind. There is many people in this life who are doing that, who are running that race. You have every right to do that. But church, it is only through Christ that we realize and cling to true freedom. The, the, the freedom in Christ to love selflessly, to give ourselves for others, to love God and love others. The freedom that Christ demonstrated on that cross. Because of that church, let us be a people who respond to his gospel. Let us be a people who follow his lead and invite others to do the same. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Let's pray. Lord, we have been in your word, and 
we're here in your presence and we come to you now, first just in confession. Lord, we know that so often we are selfish. And so often we pursue our own interests, often at the expense of others, at the expense of our community, at the expense of our church. Lord, would you forgive us? We long to live the life you have called us to live in your word. We long to live the life that Jesus modeled for us, a life of selfless and sacrificial love, loving each other with the kind of love that you have loved us. Now, Lord, I I pray for those who may be seeing the beauty and the truth of your gospel for the first time. For those who are responding to the gospel for the first time this morning. Lord, we thank you for new life. Now, Lord, would you provide them courage and wisdom to take the next steps, to talk with someone here, to get connected in community into a community group. And for those, Lord, in this room who know you and follow you, would you help us to live more selflessly? Would you show us ways that we can invest our lives in kingdom work, in gospel advancement? Thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for our church. I thank you that you are changing lives. I thank you for the ways that I have seen your people give themselves for gospel advancement in our community. Lord, would you help us to leave here to live out Paul's words, that we would not seek our own good, but the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.